Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, endowed chair of politics, science, and religion here at UofL. Before we get to the main event today, a brief word of housekeeping. Thanks to the great leadership of our colleague Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel has gotten some freshening up. Episodes will now be accessible on the CAD website, like always, through the University of Louisville, as well as through Spotify and Apple podcast streams. Just search for Center for Asian Democracy, subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future content. I'll be joined in these episodes on the interviewer side of the mic this time by Dr. Ashani Dasgupta, CAD's postdoctoral research fellow. Ashani, how's it going today? It's going great. We are thrilled to be joined in this episode by Professor Sheila Coronel. Coronel directs the Tony Stabile Center for Investigative Journalism at Columbia University School of Journalism. She began reporting in the Philippines during the twilight of the Marcos dictatorship back in the mid-80s, when she wrote for the underground opposition press and later for mainstream magazines and newspapers. In 1989, Coronel and her colleagues founded the Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism. In 2001, that center's reporting led to the fall of President Joseph Estrada, and in 2003, Coronel won Asia's premier prize, the Ramon Magsaysay Award. Her recent work is on the populist Philippine president, Rodrigo Duterte, and human rights abuses associated with the Philippines' war on drugs. Professor Coronel was in town last week to deliver CAD's 2022 annual lecture on Asian democracy on the topic of democracy, digital politics, and the struggle for historical memory. See the full event video on our website and YouTube uh, for all of the details and visuals from that talk. The topic couldn't be more timely. In May 2022, the Philippine electorate overwhelmingly chose Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., the son of deposed martial law dictator Ferdinand Marcos, as the country's next president. A digital contest over historical memory was at the center of the Marcos campaign. This largely played out online, involving students, journalists, civil society organizations, and archivists working to preserve the historical record in the country and democracy's future. In our interview with Sheila, we talk about what has changed since her early days in the underground press and what this means for democracy, both in the country and across the region. What stood out to you about our conversation, Ashani? I think what particularly stood out was how Professor Cornell's work on social media propaganda and its impact on political outcomes in the Philippines has many parallels across Asia today. Uh, disinformation from China to India and from Myanmar to Indonesia has been used to create political publics, often through a polarizing discourse. For instance, in India, while TikTok is banned, which was widely used during the Philippines election, uh, WhatsApp and Facebook have been repeatedly used by the far right to incite crowds and foment violence. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about both in Philippines and across the region. And so we're thrilled to have had uh, Professor Coronel with us. Without any further ado, let's turn to that conversation with Professor Sheila Coronel. All right, Professor Coronel, thanks so much for, again, being with us this morning. Um, you've been visiting us here in person at the Center for Asian Democracy for a keynote lecture on democracy, disinformation, and the struggle for historical memory. Uh, your talk wasn't only about the Philippines or only about its new president, but he was definitely a theme uh, in your presentation. Can you maybe start us out today by telling us a little bit about how Bongbong Marcos utilized or even manipulated media as part of his uh, political rise? 
So Bongo Marcos, or Ferdinand Marcos Jr., is the son of a dictator who was ousted by a popular uprising in 1986. For many Filipinos who were there at that time, the return of the Marcoses seems unimaginable. But the unimaginable has become reality, and a large part of that is owed to how the Marcoses have been able to rehabilitate themselves using um, social media, but also traditional legacy media, and basically rebranded themselves, not as the murderous, plundering family that Filipinos had removed from power 36 years ago, but really as victims of a conspiracy among liberal elites, the United States, and the Catholic Church. Basically the whole, uh, you know, including journalists, academic, civil society. And they, they propagated the notion that they had been unjustly removed from power. But it's not just, you know, it's, I, th I think people tend to give media or social media a lot of influence. But there, Marcos has also remained wealthy. They've made alliances with the most powerful political families in the Philippines, including that of the former president, Rodrigo Duterte, who remains very popular and still quite powerful, and his daughter, Sara Duterte, who's his vice president. So it's, it's really a lot of it is also hardcore political networks and money that went into his campaign. But a good part of it is also the rebranding strategy that the Marcus has been able to implement since their return to the Philippines in 1992. And just maybe as a follow-up, so now that he's been in office for um, a few months after the, the May election, um, is there any sense of how this approach to um, rebranding, as you've called it, is changing? Is it more of the same? Is there any difference that you've noticed in the last few months? Well, there, there is a big difference between the way Ferdinand Sr., the current president's father, did his propaganda. This was the 1970s and the 1980s. So obviously, those were the days of big media and um, state control of the major newspapers and the broadcasters. So, so it's very different. After, after the fall of the Marcoses, the free press was reinstituted in the Philippines. There's a multiplicity and plur plurality of voices. But what the Marcoses did really was to flood the information space, both legacy media, broadcasting, newspapers, and social media, which has been growing in the Philippines, with basically new types of propaganda that were not, you know, the, tell you, it was basically using a lot of entertainment, a lot of videos, um, to propagate a different image of the Marcoses. The Marcoses kind of as glamorous, uh, but also as edgy and transgressive, because they were against the liberal establishment that had been in power in the Philippines since 1986. So they seemed to be the subvert, they seemed to subvert the established liberal order, and they rode on a lot of popular disaffection and disenchantment with the failed promises of liberal democracy. Yeah, and they seem to be having fun while they're doing it in some of this media. A lot of the Marcos um, stuff on, on social media platforms is ironic, just as a lot of um, right-wing voices in the U.S. are kind of ironic and funny, transgressive. They use a lot of memes, a lot of a lot of um, images, a lot of videos, a lot of 
free willing commentary that seems and is a large part of it is organic and spontaneous. It doesn't seem like it's it's manipulated. It doesn't seem like it's it's uh, bludgeoning you with the propaganda. It's very it's very subtle. Yeah. yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And I wanted to ask you actually about the platforms used these days to disseminate this sort of propaganda by the political class, uh, especially TikTok, because I know that um, uh, Marcos used uh, TikTok quite effectively. Uh, so do you think that TikTok is, for instance, opposed to Facebook or YouTube, is a more virulent platform for spreading misinformation uh, regarding the classes? I know, you know, in, uh, that Facebook has been taken for its task, uh, so, sorry, Facebook has been taken to task for its role in spreading um, misinformation in Ma Myanmar and then in India and the subsequent violence that resulted. And um, there are content moderators and fact checkers on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but, you know, is that sort of accountability even possible with TikTok, uh, given that it's under the purview of the PRC? And do you think that makes a difference? So Facebook is a very popular platform in the Philippines. And the former president, Rodrigo Duterte, really used Facebook quite a lot, mm -hmm. both to demonize drug uh, what drug addicts or drug users, but also to propagate this image of a strong man president who needed to discipline society because society was unruly. So a lot of the Facebook um, posts during the Duterte era were very kind of masculine, strong messaging, very, um, you know, it's, it, uh, it's very polarizing, uh, and I and I think that worked for Duterte. Marcos has a different image, so I I think of Duterte as the Facebook president. I think of Bombo Marcos as the TikTok president, mm. because the Im, uh, those the TikTok is not optimized for conflict and polarization. TikTok is optimized for feeling good and happy. And so the image that Bonbo Marcus wanted to propagate was the image of this harmless, likable, kind of even boring family man. But also, you know, his message was unity. So he says, unlike Duterte, who wanted to fight and kill, Bonbon said, let's unite. You know, all of these people, they just want to fight all of this you know, pro-democracy people, they kept criticizing our family. That was a long time ago. Let's just get together and unite. So this very kind of anodyne, kind of cotton candy type messaging was perfect for TikTok. Facebook is still popular in the Philippines and, and Bonbon Marcos and actually the opposition also, Lenny Robredo used Facebook, they also used TikTok. But I think the personality and the persona that Marcos wanted to propagate was very good for TikTok. Now, TikTok, I'm told, actually takes down posts much, much more easily than Facebook does. They don't really care because Facebook has to defend itself before a Western public. TikTok does not. So TikTok will just take out that information. So, so I, I, I think if we think of takedowns as the solution to this information, it's not because a lot of the, the things that are on TikTok and even Facebook are not really fake news or disinformation. They're very like, how do you censor dance challenges, for example? 
uh, dance challenges put forth by one of the Marcos sons, right? Or, or um, a narration of her parents' love story by Amy Marcos, the president's sister, who's also a senator. It romanticizes the Marcoses, makes them seem kind of, you know, approachable celebrities. It's not really fake news, it's not disinformation, but it's a softening of, of the image, softening of the family. They're not the murderous, thieving dictators that we knew in the 1980s. They're really this very nice family, kind of glamorous, very pretty, very good looking. Yeah. That's what TikTok does. That's really interesting, like yeah. the development of a personality cult almost through these medias. And while we're still grappling with the effect of what social media has, uh, the capacity to do in the political sphere. Uh, since we're on uh, social media platforms, I actually wanted to go back to your um, investigative, uh, you know, the, the impeachment of Prime Minister Estrada. And you've been leading uh, investigative reporter for some time now, including the work, um, you know, that led to the impeachment. And do you think that if Estrada era investigating report uh, reporting was to happen in the time of Facebook, WhatsApp, TikTok, it might have gone differently and what it, would have changed? It might have gone differently, partly because the media structure has changed. Mm -hmm. You know, now there, anyone can be a journalist. At that time, this was the early days of the internet. Um, the, the, the media was still largely, you know, a few broadcasters, major newspapers. We were a small organization. We're kind of an alternative media outlet. But we were able to expose the wrongdoing by the Estrada administration without, if we did that today, we'd be trolled would be sued, would be demonized, would be delegitimized, would be seen as being under payroll of some other opposition members. There would be such a cacophony of voices that we would be drowned out. So the, really the challenge for accountability reporting these days is to make yourself heard because it's censorship by noise, not so much censorship by silencing news. Yeah, it's great that you bring up the pressures that journalists in the Philippines uh, face today. Some of our listeners probably know that the Philippines has always been a challenging environment for reporters, um, and this is definitely still the case um, today. Just within this past month, a very prominent radio journalist uh, was killed in the country, um, allegedly on orders that came from inside one of the country's prisons. Uh, your colleague, Maria Reza of, of Rappler, um, received the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, uh, but still faces conviction for cyber libel charges, and there would be other examples too. Um, could you say a little bit more about the pressures that journalists face these days and how those pressures are different maybe than they were when you were a student journalist or a journalist in the underground press? So the pressures are, are not, are, are, are kind of the same, but they're also very different. I, I think the way media is controlled now is, is largely through sort of exiling independent media into this sphere where they talk only to a small audience, preventing them from growing and, and really by creating alternatives to them. Like in the Philippines now, there's the rise of, an, of a new channel that's very much like our Fox News. So countering mainstream television, because television was the most popular medium in the Philippines for a very long time. Mainstream TV was very much very neutral, kind of not taking partisan sides. And they were, you know, they, they would be critical of, of politicians in a very, very professional way. 
So what what's emerging now is the rise of kind of right-wing, um, illiberal media that is drowning out the voices of mainstream media. So that's one part of it. But the other part of it is also the closure of the biggest TV network in the Philippines, which happened in the Duterte era, by denying them a franchise. It's an independent TV network and basically silencing that voice and then silencing the other critical voices through lawsuits. They're not, they won't put you in jail, or, or, but they will just intimidate you and harass you while also having like an, a social media universe kind of in a coordinated campaign to demonize, threaten, and delegitimize you. The kinds of threats Rappler and Maria Ress have been getting are like threats of rape, murder, we're going to attack you, etc. They're very violent threats. And so to me, it's, it's kind of an escalation of, of, the th of the threats that it's not quite state, there is state, um, state pressures, but a lot of it is also pressures from ordinary citizens. And mm. journalists around the world still don't know, still grappling with how to deal with this. Yeah, well, yeah. speaking of around the world, you now have a, a perch at Columbia that is more global in scope. And I'm curious what you think. I mean, you're involved in lots of international networks. The Nobel Peace Prize has gone to journalists several times now. What internationally do you think can help when the pressures on journalists seem to be coming so organically from below, from within domestic context? What can international journalists or international networks really do effectively to, to protect and promote good journalism? Well, there, there, still, there really needs to be support for independent media whether it's in India, the Philippines, the media in exile in Myanmar, a lot of these journalists are working under really extreme pressures and they need help. They need help to do original reporting, they need help, help for media defense, because all of these lawsuits really drain resources. They need help in terms of legal support, they need help with technology, they need help in terms of protection. You know, for example, the use of the Pegasus software by many governments, including India, Salvador, etc. The help that was provided by technologists around the world to help them see how that software was being used was really, really helpful. So there's help on multiple fronts, cybersecurity, physical security, you know, for exile. Journalists who are forced to go into exile there's now more than 100 journeys in exile in Latin America, not to mention the journeys in ex had to go to exile from Russia and Belarus. So there needs to be more coordination among media organizations in the rest of the world to support journalists who are threatened, and that support can come in various ways. Exile, relocation, cybersecurity, a safe haven, even fellowships so that journalists can take some rest from very harassing work, training the next generation of journalists. So there's a lot that can be done internationally. I think what the Nobel Prize has done is to focus the attention on, on the work and the difficulties faced by independent journalists all around the world and the threat that, uh, and that, that what is threatened is not just journalists but democracy itself. Yeah. Um, a, a major theme in your talk was the sort of politics of history and the contest over the, the historical archive. Um, more recently, when it comes to uh, controversies over facts and, and data in the Philippines, one very contentious uh, 
arena has been the data about the drug war, about Rodrigo Duterte's anti-narcotic campaign in which uh, at the least thousands of, uh, of individuals were killed in a blend of police operations and vigilante killings. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how, as a reporter, data and sort of a search for facts factored into, especially the early reporting in the drug war, when when the very existence of these operations was disputed and not acknowledged. Um, how did you, as a reporter, use data uh, to, to build the story that you and your colleagues were telling about the drug war? So the, the numbers of the casualties killed in the drug war is very, very contested. And there's been a lot of great field reporting on on what happens to communities that had been affected by the drug war, what I thought we could contribute because, um, you know, we're not doing the field reporting, there are other people doing that, was to look at the data. And so we gathered casualty data from police reports, from reports by NGOs, from reports by parishes. Basically, we went all as much as we can. We looked at three case studies three cities where the drug war was, um, had exacted the most toll, and compared what the police said, what the numbers were, with the data that we got elsewhere, including from funeral parlors, from churches, from parishes. And we saw the big disparity in the numbers between what the police reported and what others had reported. And we actually worked with a human rights statistician in California who had testified in international trials all over the world to use um, statistical modeling to calculate what the actual numbers would be. So they've used these methods, for example, to look at civilian casualties in Iraq during the Iraq war. So we kind of use the same methodology to calculate what are the real numbers. So so we found it was, it was you know, maybe three to four times more than what the police said. So kind of using data and statistical analysis in order to, um, with, with physical records, in order to give a sense of the scale of the atrocities that were committed during that war. Yeah. So one thing that we've talked about on our visit is both in the Philippines and also here in Louisville, actually, how the the politics of of history is often centered on memorialization as well, right? And in the Philippines, a lot of this has centered around the martial law period and the different museums and memorials there. Um, here in in Louisville, we have uh, ongoing uh, controversies over memorialization of historical figures in the city, as well as uh, the appropriate way to commemorate victims of of state violence, like Breonna Taylor. Um, and I'm curious, when you think going forward about memorializing the drug war and the role of public memory and historical memory related to the drug war, what could you see as kind of meaningful steps that could be taken to, um, to, to preserve this archive that some of you have begun to gather in, the, in this short term? But what could be a longer term form that a memorial uh, or an archive might take related to the drug war? Um, at the moment, there are memorials being done at local community levels, mostly through churches, using funeral masses and using you know anniversary masses, using rituals like you know the Day of the Dead in order to memorialize um, the casualties. I do not see that there can be more public and bigger memorials at this time when people are still very much afraid for their lives and there could be repercussions because the policemen who did these killings are still there. Uh, but at some point, I think there has to be, there can be built some sort of public 
memorials, maybe grieving places, maybe little markers where these killings took place. There could also be kind of a digital archive. There's a lot of photographs because the photographers have really been at the front line of the coverage of the drug war. There could be an archive digitally of, of this. There have been exhibits of photographs which have really been, really been helpful. But the archival material, I think, is there. It's sitting around in various people's hard drives. So at some point, I think this archival material can be collected, along with some of the other things, you know, autopsy reports, um, death certificates. A lot of that are still in the hands of the families. And some of that has been collected by various people, human rights groups, for example, churches, parishes. And at some point, all of that can be put together and in an archive, perhaps maybe in a university library or something, where, um, where people who want to go back to this era can look at this original material and try and make sense of it. Uh, I just want to. Um I just want to continue on this conversation of uh, you know historical memory, both for community healing and for the development of democracy. Um, you have a unique position now through the Columbia uh, Stable Center, especially getting a broader sort of regional view of the fight uh, for democracy and historical memory across Asia. So, can you tell us, uh, you know, maybe two or three underreported stories in the West that are crucial to track in the coming months for democracy? across the region? Well, we'll be having elections in many countries um, in, the coming, in the coming years. And there's, right now, I think history is an arena, a battlefield where contesting ideologies and points of views and visions about the future of the countries, of, con of country are being, are being fought. Uh, like, like in India, for example, a lot of, a lot, I mean, it's been, it's been well covered, but you know, the notion of what is India, is it primarily Hindu country, the notion of Indian history is being contested and it's become a way both to justify um, the rule of the BJP, but also to clamp down on non-Hindu elements of the population. Um, in, in Hong Kong, the rewriting of textbooks by China is being used to justify Chinese domination of Hong Kong. And as we see in Russia, uh, the rewriting of Russian history by Vladimir Putin. I mean, Putin makes a very strong case of Russian history and why Ukraine has never been independent of Russia, why Ukraine is part of Russia. So history or some version of history is being used to justify war, domination, and the ascendancy of power of, of certain um, elite factions or certain powerful sections of society. So I see that continuing, and this is why I think journalists, and in fact, you know, journalists have been at the forefront. I mean, 1619, the project of the New York Times, which tries to rethink the origins of, of America, is re are really journalists uh, writing about history. Um, the New York Times did this controversial take on Haitian history that looks at the damage that French and American co colonialism has done on Haiti, and earthing archives again. But, and showing that as related to the current sorry state of Haiti. So digging into colonial history and is, is becoming very much a part of current journalism. I mean, there have been books that have been written about your alma mater, Georgetown, and its links to slavery by journalists. 
and has resulted in actually some sort of compensation being made to, to the families of, of slaves once held by the Jesuits. So all of that digging into history now on both sides but it's, it's very much um, not just a historian's mission, but very much also a journalistic mission now. And I see that happening more and more. I see that happening in investigative reporting when people look at uh, racial, uh, you know, racism in policing, they're also digging up how communities have been looking at urban planning how communities have been divided. They're looking at how policing is related to a whole history of racism in housing, in education, etc. So digging into the roots of current problems has become very much, I think, a societal undertaking in many, in, in many places, countering state-sponsored uh, revision of history. Yeah. That's that's really interesting, and and it brings me uh, to a question on on large scale resistance, uh, especially in the context of the struggle for truth. And I think yesterday, you in your talk, you gave a very moving account of how you were involved in. Um, involved in the events leading to the uh, fall of uh, Ferdinand Marcos. Uh, so you know you've presented stories. Um, as well about journalists and academics and activists working together to combat and uh, fake news, preserve historical record. Um, how does uh, disinformation affect popular resistance across the region? And and can uh, is it even po possible now to have a people's power movement succeeding in an information environment, which, as you say, there's a cacophony almost of uh, information? Is it how does resistance look at this moment? You know, I see Ukraine as a great example of how to counter uh, Russian propaganda, which is very sophisticated and very uh, and very well resourced. I mean, I think that the Ukrainian example of how you defend your democracy against this this in this case Russian um, state propaganda is very inspiring because I think. You can only do so much disinformation because there's lived reality on the ground that you cannot deny. And, and, and I think social movements, um, people who are were, uh, in sort of the information sphere, who have public authority, can, can counter, I mean, like, like in the Philippines, for example, a lot of celebrities are taking part on both sides of this debate in the history of the Marcoses. So it's not just academics, activists, but also people in, you know, theater is a good way, film, art, public art, uh, public memorializing. Um, there's a group of um, academics around, Filipino academics around the world who've been working on this information. And what they're saying is that you need a whole of society approach to counter state-sponsored disinformation. And for sure, society is divided, but if there is enough, and I saw this, this is really not new. I mean, old media was the same way. There was, Marcos media was very controlled. But then you had ordinary citizens photocopying, distributing um, critical information, using at that time in the 1980s 
very much still print. There was, you know, broadcast was very controlled. But there was like what they called Xerox journalism. You saw that in Indonesia as well. So there's, it doesn't matter what the technology is, as long as there is popular groundswell and social movements are ascendant and strong and organized, um, I, I, I see hope. The problem sometimes is that, and one of my colleagues, Zeynep Tufeci, has written about this, is social media movements powered, uh, um, social movements powered by social media tend to be very thin and fleeting because they don't have organization on the ground. So social media has been very much used in Black Lives Matter, Occupy, etc. But you really need to build grassroots organizations in order to bring about social change. So maybe we could wrap up with a little bit of a longer view question. Um, you're a veteran investigative reporter. You've investigated and taken part in democratic movements for decades now. Um, when scholars, especially like me, of comparative democracy talk about democracy these days, frequently it's with a pessimistic tone. Honestly, it's with a, a tone of sometimes using the word democratic backsliding or even a global democratic recession some people talk about. Um, and this is not just in the Philippines. This is more more broadly. Um, I'm curious, though, as if you sort of step back over the course of your career and take a longer view, um, how does your optimism or pessimism about liberal democracy uh, look right now like, with that longer view? Um, does it make you actually more... Uh, cautious about being too down on democracy or actually when you look with a longer view do you do you think the pessimism is, is pretty warranted right now I, I kind of see this moment as an opportunity to for us to think about what democracy really means um, for the Philippines and for various countries because there can be not one democracy I think the problem is that liberal democracy was kind of a model that had been you know both imposed as well as you know people People thought it was what was needed. But I think there's now we see what democracy, in order to survive, really needs more than just these institutions. It really needs, it cannot thrive in situations where there is so much poverty and equality, both within countries and globally. I think that is the realization. The democracy will not just happen, that it's not it's not going to be triumphant, it's not going to be desired if it does not deliver. So I think it is time to re-examine what we mean by democracy and what, I don't even want to call it liberal democracy, I want to call it broadly democracy. There are many kinds of democracy and I think we have to think, what is the democracy that we need? I mean, what the, the democracy that India needs is very different from the kind of democracy that the Philippines needs. How do we break down in the Philippine case, for example? How do we break down family and oligarchy power? How do we re-engineer our, our political systems to ensure that there is broader representation? You know, those, those are questions we have to grapple with as societies. And I think the more the people realize how broken the system is, the more there will be, I think, groundswell from below and the more organizing that can be done around issues not of environmental justice, for example especially in situation of climate risk all around the world. I think there will be new modes of mobilization and new causes around which to mobilize that are not, you know, we should take down this government, but, but more on what can we do to ensure resilience of democratic institutions and of communities that are going to be ravaged 
both by autocracy and climate change and all of that. So, so I think there's going to be a lot of innovation. I see moments of crisis because I've been there before where people are really, really down, but it takes us to be on the brink of the abyss to realize, hey guys, we all need to do something here. Yeah, well, in this kind of a moment of, uh, of those kinds of questions being asked about democracy in the Philippines, across Asia, and, and really uh, across the world, um, it's so important to have the perspective that you bring to these issues, the experiences, both with democracy's moments of real optimism and also challenges as we uh, seek to answer these serious questions about the, what democracy needs to mean to serve the needs of people um, uh, in the Philippines and, and abroad. So thanks so much for being with us, Professor Coronel. Uh, it's a wonderful conversation. We're so glad that you could join us in person person here at UofL, and, uh, and we look forward to continuing the conversation. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.